a listener production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. One of the ways we do this is through live events, like the Leadership Summit we held in March 2021. There is an incredible atmosphere when you're in a room of inspiring women, especially when they're there sharing their stories and leadership experience. In this episode, I'm bringing you one of the highlights of the summit. Now, there's no question diverse teams lead to better results. Diverse teams bring new perspective and insight. A diverse team is less likely to fall victim to groupthink. So why do we still see so many senior roles held by people who look and think the same? And how do you build a diverse team? We asked four women who are working to build more diverse and inclusive workplaces in their own fields. Tanya Hosh is the General Manager, Inclusion and Social Policy of the AFL. Grazia Pecoraro is a Diversity and Inclusion Consultant with Diversity Partners. Lisa Anise is the CEO of Diversity Council Australia. And Magellan Noble is the Director, Accessibility and Inclusion at Westpac. So let's jump into it. Grazia, you've been following this space forever. What does diversity mean to you today? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I definitely would have answered that very, very differently sort of 10 years ago when I first got into the space. Back then, it was very much about a segmented space. You were talking about, you know, disability or you're talking about sexual orientation or gender. The words and the, the phrases and the terminology and the evolution of the language really reflects how this whole agenda has matured. And today we talk about it in terms of intersectionality. We are not just one person. We bring so many unique identities to the workplace with us. And with each of those identities comes a whole lot of lived experiences and a whole lot of struggles around power imbalances or stereotypes, biases that we encounter. And what we're seeing as a consultancy is a lot more focus around the concept of psychological safety and belonging So diversity has really changed from that place of me as an individual to the collective of inclusion. And what are we doing in our workplaces to create places where people can bring themselves to work and are they not actually penalized for that? And when they speak up and offer the diversity of thought and their different lived experiences, that there's no negative consequences for them around that. And that really, I would say, is the way that the agenda has shifted more broadly. And I, I'm, I always say to my clients is that the way we speak about it this year is not the way we'll speak about it next year because this is um, an evolving agenda and it has to keep trend and it has to keep up with what people want and what they want it to be. Tanya, so let's go to you because AFL is kind of really easy to wrap our head around. How diverse is the AFL now? Certainly on field at the elite level of the game, about 5% of the AFLW players are Indigenous and in the men's game, you know, between 10 and 11% of the men are Indigenous and people from other cultural and religious backgrounds are growing every year. So that's positive. But in our workforce, which just took a haircut, thanks to COVID, um, we've lost a lot of that diversity in the workforce and not just in the AFL, but in clubs as well. And this is a consequence, I think, of where a workforce will have their diversity concentrated in areas that are about delivering programs with community or specifically with what are considered 
diverse people. I don't consider Indigenous people diverse because we were here first. So to me, everyone else is. So I sort of feel like, you know, we definitely did a lot of work last year to put in some subsidies in place to try and make sure that we didn't lose women and Indigenous people from football departments in particular because that's where it's often hardest to get diverse talent into the game. And obviously the department that runs the team often has a lot more power and influence in the structure. So um, that was important. So we did that and that's helped a bit, but we now have a lot of ground to make up. How hard is your job? Well, recently there's been some issues dealing with Collingwood Football Club and I ended up having to do quite a lot of media in that time. I thought it felt like what it might be like to run backwards in stilettos on a tightrope without a net. Um, And look, being a a brown woman in what has always been a a big white male workforce um, has been challenging, but I'm nearly five years in. Definitely made some progress. Definitely used my voice. But, yeah, I I take some hits. But I think that's what happens to anyone who's a professional disruptor. You have done an extraordinary job and you are an amazing voice um, in this space and congratulations for the way you did manage the Collingwood Football Club issue and the Adam Goods issue prior to that. Magella, what change have you seen and what change would you like to see? I guess I'll just give a bit of background of where I've come from to where I've got to today will probably help answer that question. So I've come from a rural town in New South Wales, grew up there, In my early 20s, I actually lost my vision. So a big, I guess, impact to my life, but everyone around me. So that whole concept of inclusion came at a big bang because for me it was understanding how do I fit into a world that doesn't understand how people that were in one moment of their life could do so many things and independently could carry through And then at the next moment, your whole world changes and you're actually sitting on the outside wondering how you fit into an environment that so many people don't understand where you're coming from and what you're dealing with. So for me, it's all around that inclusion to make sure that we as a society and from a very young age actually make sure that what we're doing actually ensures that we are a community where people fit And at the moment, I don't believe we're there yet. And we're probably a long way there, especially when it comes around accessibility, because people believe that it's never going to happen to them. There's numerous uh, situations where I actually see parents telling their children to stop asking questions about someone that doesn't look the same as them. And that's really sad to see in 2020 and 2021, to actually see parents silencing their children, because that's the gift of changing a culture is when a child gets to express or ask questions about something that they're not familiar with. Lisa, how are you feeling? We've seen a predecessor of yours in the Diversity Council earlier today. You know, she's pretty exhausted by these debates. How are you feeling today? You know, I'm listening to what my fellow panellists have said and there has been some progress. There are a lot of conversations that are happening. Certainly workplaces are a little bit more inclusive than what they used to be. But if we just look at the segment of gender, I've been working in the gender space for a very long time. With the exception of female 
educational attainment in Australia. We have the most educated female population in the OECD. On every other measure of gender equity, we are miles away from achieving equality. And I find that after decades of working in this space, that's really tough. And gender is a space we've been working in for the longest time, and women are not a minority group. Then if you intersect it, as Grazia mentioned, with other identities, so Indigenous women, women with disabilities, women who are on the LGBTIQ+, who are part of that identity group, then equity becomes more and more distant. So many people here might be interested to know or shocked to know that if you're a woman with a disability or an Indigenous woman, you're up to four times more likely to be sexually harassed in a workplace than if you didn't have a disability or if you weren't Indigenous. So I think it's really important to understand that these things are complex and that's why it's hard to get things to change. But yes, when you're working in the space, it can sometimes feel insurmountable. All right, let's be positive. What do we do? What do you, th- what do you recommend? What are you seeing in organisations at the moment that you know, are being trialled or being run that are starting to move the dial? I'm feeling really encouraged in a few spaces. Corporate Australia is miles ahead of government. And it didn't used to be like that. When I started in this space, government was miles ahead. But certainly they're taking it much more seriously. It's great to see the conversation around things like shared care parental leave. So moving beyond what the Act dictates organisations should offer their employees. It's great to see organisations focus on things like how to mainstream flexible work, trying to get men to be more flexible and more active as parents because we know if there's one thing that will enable women in heterosexual relationships to participate more fully in a workplace, it's if the childcare and the and the housework is shared outside the workplace. So it's pleasing to see some some changes in that space, but I think we've got to keep at it because there are lots of things that organisations do that don't work. Women are mentored to death. That doesn't work. That doesn't change the culture. Women don't necessarily need mentoring and they don't necessarily need to find their voice. They have a voice. They need the space to be able to use it and they need to be able to lean into cultures that are not biased. There's a whole range of points there. So can I just say, I didn't mean government as a public sector employer, I meant politics. Yes. <laughs> That's what I meant. Got it, yes. I'm going to just jump straight to Grazia and say, when you're working with organisations that are looking to make a change, what advice do you have and what policies or initiatives are starting to move the dial? We've come into a year where at Diversity Partners where we've had a heightened interest, which is fantastic to see in organisations who have reached out to us to say help we know there's a problem and we need experts to come in and help us. So that, I agree with you, Lisa, it's when you look into the the mountain, it's sometimes absolutely exhausting because we know how much work has been done. But what gives me hope at the moment is that we are working with organizations, public, private, large, small, retail, manufacturing, in all sorts of environments at the moment. We're actually looking at two things. The first thing would be around unpacking the system and pulling apart the systems because there are systems that we have in our organisations that may have served us well in the past, but no longer do. So we would typically come in and have a look at um, processes like, you know, leave processes, recruitment processes, and deeply analyse them for where they are uninclusive and where they're open to bias. 
words like merit, for example, and really challenging organizations to start thinking differently about those systemic challenges, I suppose, which are preventing them from creating that inclusive workplace. The second piece is around symbols, and I suppose for, for the aspiring leaders in the room today, I would really call out that don't wait for your organization to start. You can start yourself. I was in a running a focus group for a client last week where we were exploring their inclusion culture around feeling safe to speak up. Do I feel I get penalized if I bring new ideas to work? And I started that focus group as I do with all my meetings. I was on a, on a virtual call with an acknowledgement of country. And when it came to the participation session at, 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 at one of the stages, one of the um, participants said to me, Grazia, that's the first time I've actually heard an acknowledgement of country done in our organization. And I said to her, that's fantastic. She said, I want, to, I want to see more of this. I said, great, your next meeting started with an acknowledgement of country. Don't wait for your organization to create a process and wording. Start tomorrow, start creating those symbols of change. And I think this is something we can all, as leaders of leaders in roles of influence or hierarchical leaders do, is start creating those symbols and starting to agitate for the change that we want. Speaking to each of these women, I could feel their passion for diversity, but also the frustration at the rate of change. But it struck me this means there is so much opportunity for smart managers to take the lead in their workplace. Considering how male-dominated the AFL was, I wanted to know what signs of change Tanya had seen in her time working at the AFL. One of the things that I recognised when I went into the AFL was just how few Indigenous people were in decision-making roles. So all of a sudden I find myself on the AFL executive. You know, it wasn't a career plan. I just ended up there in a sense. Um, I remember when I started, we've got 18 clubs and there was only one club that had an Indigenous board member. And you think about the contribution of Indigenous people to the game. You know, it's often been said that the game wouldn't be anywhere near as exciting as it is without Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players. So now we've got five Indigenous board members um, out of 18 clubs, soon to be six. And, you know, hopefully that will tip. And I think that that, to me, is almost the most important thing to see happen. In this day and age, there are more than enough capable people from diverse backgrounds with different lived experiences, with unique perspectives, who walk and chew gum at the same time, who are eminently qualified to contribute to any kind of board. You do the skills matrix. So now a club says to me, can you help me find an Indigenous person with this skill mix? And guess what? Pretty much can. So it's just about actually asking yourself the question, how much longer is it okay for any Australian organisation not to have First Peoples embedded in their organisation and demonstrating leadership and bringing that contribution to the table? My very firm view is if you're not going to get it right with the First Peoples of the country, you're probably only going to have flashes where you get it right with anyone else, but it won't be sustained because the foundation isn't there. Magella, can I come to you? You've been working in the banking sector. What has worked in the space of diversity that you've seen? And do you agree with Tanya, for example, or have you seen a different experience? I think Westpac have done a really good job in the inclusion and diversity space. So for me, my team is access and inclusion. So we really focus on 
the access of people's needs and requirements. So back in 2016, we moved away from asking people what their disability was because what does that really give people? It's it's like an identity to a point, but everyone's needs and requirements are different. So getting rid of the label actually as an organisation at Westpac, we look at people's needs and their requirements and the roles and the ability that they can do the job. It doesn't matter what diversity background they come from. It's all about making sure that we have the right processes in place, but not just to tick a box, but to actually make sure that people can do their job. I think for us, one of the big achievements that I really would like to call out is the fact that we're a business unit that sits within the business. We don't sit on the sideline. We actually sit in the business where our customers' products and services are being created. We actually get to understand the customer's needs. So we actually can build that in to make sure that both our customers' needs and our employees are being met by the requirements that we're able to deliver on. We don't always get it right. We're aware of that. But we try our hardest to make sure that people who have got a lived experience, as discussed before, having a lived experience gives you that knowledge and the power to make the right decisions at the right time in a process. Lisa, can I jump to you and pick up on the comments as well around advisory boards and what you see as working in organisations and what recommendations you make for getting the sorts of policies that Magella is talking about? For change in this space to be effective, what I've observed working in organisations are a couple of things. You need to have leadership. Without leadership, um, without the people in charge making this a priority, um, it's really difficult. It's not to say change can't happen. The board I sit on is Amnesty International and that's all about grassroots people power and that can affect change. But it's hard. It's very hard. And when you're talking about diverse groups, often these groups do not have power in a workplace context. So leadership is really important and them committing to change. You need the infrastructure within an organisation. So things like policies, processes, the HR process that um, Grazia was discussing, those things do need to be examined. In and of themselves, they're not enough, but they create the framework for which people are aware of their entitlements and they set the scene for what the rules are. Um, And then there's that invisible thing called culture. And culture in an organisation is about every interaction every individual has every day. And it's about the invisible rules. Everyone knows what the culture is in their workplace. We all know what's acceptable, what we can get away with and what we can't. And I think it's important for organisations to have some bravery, um, not to say that they make examples of people, but that they take serious action on serious matters, that they don't tolerate sexism, they don't tolerate racism, that they have ways of measuring that, that they tie those accountabilities to the executive remuneration of their most senior leaders. That is one of the biggest ways to motivate an executive is tie their bonus to that kind of stuff. So it's a whole bunch of things that need to be in place for change to happen. And when I've seen change be really effective, you often look and it's the CEO or the board who said, this is really important to me, or there's been some catalyst for change in that organisation. Grazia, can I ask you to throw forward? You've seen a lot of change, as you've said before, the language shifts quickly. What do you see on the horizon in this space? And if that's a bit tricky, um, what do you want to see move quickly? 
Look, if you haven't picked it yet, I have a South African accent and I, I grew up in South Africa in the apartheid years and I think, Helen, to your point, I've got such a, a radar for privilege and entitlement. And because when I was young, I was a kid, I did not know the society I was growing up in and that the other, whether you, it was based on colour or whatever it was, it was institutionalised, my schooling, my, my society, everything. It was just... And when I got to the, being a teenager and starting to develop my own mind, thank goodness for that, I realised that the world is not the way I thought it was. And I had this amazing experience of being able to go on a leadership program when I was 16 years old and represent my school. Nelson Mandela had just come out of jail. And the, the, the mining companies, of course, in South Africa were investing a lot of money into reconciliation programs. And they put school kids on trains. We had a specially fitted out train and we went around the country for 10, 14 days with 60 other kids that I'd never had integration with before that were not Anglo kids. And the young person my parents dropped off at the station was not the same one they picked up a week later. And I think if there's some, one thing I wish for is that privilege can start becoming more unpacked and that we can actually start understanding what it means, its impacts, and that those that have it understand, understand what they have and what their role should be deconstructing it. And I think that would be my... My, my, my forward vision is let's try and unpack that a bit more and get people to understand what they have been given because a lot of people don't necessarily even know the power they have and the, the benefits they've been able to have to, to get where they are in their careers and in their lives. I think that you make an excellent point. I'm interested to hear from Magella though. What, what would you like to see if you can look into a crystal ball and think about what might be down the track? I think it comes back to the word inclusion. So at the end of the day, we're all born. We all come into the world the same way. The future that I would like to see is something around making sure that everyone is treated the same, breaking down those biases, accepting people for who they are, providing the support that people need when they need it. And most of all, allowing people to be themselves, whether it's work at home and not being judged because they look different to their neighbour or their sister or their brother or their work colleague. As I mentioned, you know, I've gone from a sighted world to a non-sighted world and it's amazing the comments that come out and the way people treat you or ignore you because you don't act or don't have the same way of doing things as they may do because their mind is so closed down to actually understanding that we all have needs and requirements. They're all different. At the end of the day, we all want them met. And to make that happen is making sure that we have a much more inclusive environment that we live in. And it goes back to my point of, you know, when I hear parents telling children to not ask a question of, why do you have a cane? Why doesn't that lady just walk on her own? Because people just don't understand that asking that question and wanting to have the knowledge to absorb that information is key to making sure that we need to be more inclusive and enabling people to have the courage to ask that question and not get shut down is really important. Can I add something there? Of course. I know Magella quite well. I've worked with her at Westpac for a number of years and for those that may have seen her and us come onto the stage earlier, may have noticed she's been speaking about her white cane a lot, but she came onto the stage with crutches today 
And I just want to say that, you know, she has actually had an, an additional layer of complexity added to her life with a, a recent, recent injury. And I think what's really important is that, is that people's needs keep changing and we need to acknowledge that. This is someone who just has so much resilience and has so many stories to tell around, you know, the world throwing barriers at you. And I just want to call out the organisers for being overtly inclusive and asking us what our needs were to be able to participate in today's conference. Is there anything you wanted to add, Magella? So yes, as Grazia called out, I have made it a little bit more complex for myself in tearing two calf muscles and ending up on crutches. But you know what? That whole thing around inclusion, I've actually gone back to work three days a week, the day after it happened, and my support network at work and complete strangers haven't stood back and gone, let's get out of her way. They've actually stepped forward and said, how can we make you whilst you're in work more independent? So that's what I mean by making an inclusive environment. Someone just asking the question can make the whole difference to making someone feel part of a community. Thank you, and thank you, Grazia, for making that point. And I am glad that the entry was smooth. I'm going to have to wrap up soon. So I'm going to come to Lisa first and just say to you, final advice as the CEO of Diversity Council, final advice to this young group of women who are passionate about this issue and want to be able to do the right thing um, and are anxious about doing the wrong thing, um, how do they move forward in their organisations? What I would say to people is that this is not an area that you naturally, people naturally know. Unless you've had a lived experience that sort of forced you into, you know, rapidly acquiring knowledge. Our brains are wired to look for patterns and homogenous peoples that makes us feel safe and so going into situations where people are different to us actually can require some skill so my advice to people is to try and learn open your mind up and try and understand what life could have been had you have lived it in any other skin Having said that, as women, I think it's also important to recognise that we still do have a long way to go. And so therefore, I would really encourage you, if you're in an organisation that is not enabling you to actualise yourself, to go to some other organisation that's doing a better job. Um, workplaces do have a war for talent. And I think it's really incumbent upon you to recognise sometimes the only way to change things for yourself is to go somewhere else and to try and actualise yourself that way. Excellent answer. Tanya, any thoughts that you'd like to share with us in this space? You know, I guess what I would say is let's not let this conversation about inclusion or diversity pass us by. Let's not forget that there are atrocities happening all over the world I wish, um, as Magello was saying, that we all were born equal. I don't believe that's the case. If you're an Indigenous Australian, you're not born equal. And there's a whole range of other population groups that we could say that of, but I think, you know, the connection between understanding your privilege and then how you use that is probably the thing that is going to keep these conversations alive and ultimately impactful. Thank you so much, all four of you. Amazing contribution. Amazing contributions to your organisations and to the country. It's a real privilege to actually be able to speak to you. And remember, that was from one of our live events. And you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com.
The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.